Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are still in our journey through the Gospels. This is Gospels Part 70. Last week we had a myriad of different things that Jesus and his disciples went through. We saw at the beginning of the episode where Jesus began to denounce some cities, uh, bringing woes to them because of their lack of repentance and showcasing that it was better for wicked cities in the Old Testament like Tyre and Sidon and Sodom uh, on the Day of Judgment than these uh, cities within the realm of where Jesus and his disciples were traveling because of their lack of repentance, which was really heavy. Um, Then we moved on from there to the 72 disciples returning back from one of their missions like seemingly overcome with joy that they were able to cast out spirits in his name and that even demons were under their authority. And Woo-hoo. Jesus, we we showed that he was like actually really excited and was giving thanks to his father for these people who were becoming like little children, submitting to the yoke and the authority of God the Father to be able to do these things obediently. And then we t- we, we had a little bit of a conversation about what it means to have a yoke and that uh, regardless of whether you're following the world or you're following the narrative of God, you are a slave or a master to something and it it can either be oppressive or it can bring true freedom. And we ended it with saying that uh, we should be taking on the yoke of righteousness that God is giving because that's what true life is about. Yeah. And you know, every single time that topic comes up, it just, it always hits my brain the same way. And it's that, that it's almost like there's a cognitive dissonance or something. There's something unintuitive about the idea that if I, if I would submit myself to righteousness, choose righteousness, give up my own will for the sake of his will, et cetera, et cetera, that somehow in that, which sounds like I'm giving up my freedom, but in that is freedom. And it just... It's a great picture. Mm-hmm. We got to get better hold of that, all of us, every day. So, yeah, it's good stuff. Well, I guess we should see where he's going next. Yeah. Nobody cares about where we've been. <laughs> Let's talk about it. So, we start our reading today in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Long little bit of scripture. Uh, but, oh, Samuel, I think you're going to like it. This is a good one. So, here we go. Luke ten twenty five, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal 
and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Classic, classic gospels, right? Mm-hmm. Right, Samuel? This is oh, good yeah. stuff. So, but remember, it all starts out with a lawyer wants to test him. Now, when you hear that phrase, Samuel, do you think that this lawyer, I mean, just right there, a lawyer stands up to test him. Do you think he's being a good guy or a bad guy? Uh, I know there's a lot of baggage with lawyers, so it would be, <laughs> it would be <laughs> my tendency to think that maybe he had ulterior motives at hand, but that may not be the case. Yeah. See, here's the thing. A lot of times we hear the word, oh, he was going to test him. We think it's a bad thing. We think it's like he's trying to trick him or, you know, something. And okay, maybe that's what's going on here. But the word also includes just the basic idea of, listen, I kind of like what I'm hearing, but I need to, I need to like work my way in, get a little deeper. I got to find out what are you really saying, right? You're, you're testing, proving something, whether it's, you know, pop metal or actual hardened steel, that kind of thing. So we don't really know what this guy is doing. And I think it's a big mistake to give this guy bad motives. And I think it's very reasonable that he may have had very good and sincere motives. Maybe he's just trying to uh, validate his own understanding. He's checking to see, hey, am I on the right track? I mean, th- I mean, think of it. Anybody, if if you want eternal life, if if that's your goal, and you got somebody here who appears to be a little outside the box, uh, wouldn't you want to know? Hey, am I on the right path? So he could have good motives. Could be good, but interestingly, Jesus doesn't really say. But he turns the question back on the guy, the lawyer who's testing him. He wants to make him share his own understanding. And he was kind of nice about it because he actually makes his request very specific. He wants to know what this lawyer thinks that it says in the law. What does the law say about how you can attain eternal life? And this is super important Because if nothing else, we could walk away from just that little bit saying, well, apparently, according to Jesus, he believes that that's where the answer should come from. It's going to be in the law. This is important. A lot of us never see it that way. So anyway, this guy, he comes up with what I think is like the perfect answer. It's a great answer. It's it's what uh, some have termed the royal law. Have you ever heard of that, Samuel? Yeah, I was just thinking about that phrase. Um, I think we even see it. The Jesus' brother, James, says in his letter, James 2.8. Uh, That's he, right. He, he mentions the royal law. That's right. And this is the royal law. The royal law, in the simplest terms, says, hey, love God, love your neighbor. It's, I, 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 it, can you think of anything more to add to that? In terms of summaries... That's like the complete and total perfect summary. Love God, love your neighbor. Now, what's interesting is that this comes from the law. Deuteronomy 6, 5 is the one that says, hey, love God, right? All your heart, soul, mind, strength. Leviticus nineteen eighteen, love your neighbor. So it comes from the law. The guy answers perfectly. Now, here's another important point. These two commands represent the essence of the whole law. It is a summary, and I know we've, we've talked about this before. You need to go to the Torah to see all the detail, to understand what actually goes into loving God and loving your neighbor. But this is like the, the ultimate summary. Now, note this, Samuel. I, 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 can't, I don't even know how to express how important this is. What does Jesus say to the guy 
after the guy gives his answer, what he thinks the law says about how to attain eternal life. Uh, Jesus seems to indicate, like, what you said is right. Like, do that and you're good to go. Exactly. Yeah. And people read over this. Uh, one, they either read over it like it doesn't even exist, or they read it and they're they're like, you know, well, look at Jesus tricking this guy. This smarty pants thought he knew everything. And Jesus is like, oh, yeah, right. Well, whatever you say, that must. No, this is there is no trickery. There's no hyperbole. There's no sarcasm. There's nothing. This is just straight up. Jesus says, you're right. You know, do that and you are good to go. And interestingly, even Jesus's reply comes from the law, the Torah. It comes from Leviticus 18.5. If you were to read it, you'd go, well, I don't understand. Well, in popular Jewish tradition, they understood when it said, do this and you shall live, they understood that to be live eternally. So it's just a great. So this could have been the end of the whole conversation. The guy says, hey, what should I do? Jesus says, what do you think? And he goes, well, I think you should love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus is like, well, you're right. It, it could have been the end of it. But it wasn't because this guy, and again, you can ask the question, did he have good motives or bad motives? And it, understandably, you could look at it either way, but it doesn't have to be bad motives. This guy wasn't satisfied. And I'm betting all of us know what this is like. Samuel, have you ever had a thing where it's like, okay, somehow you think you know the right answer. Somebody might even validate for you. Yes, that's the right answer. And still there's that part of you. It's like somehow you don't own it yet. You you, you still, it doesn't feel like you've got a perfect grasp on it. You still have some outstanding questions. You know what I'm talking about, Samuel? I mean, that sounds like, Typical of anybody's faith journey at some point or another. <laughs> this is my everyday. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a very normal thing. So you can imagine. I mean, it's like, you know, but you don't really know. It's all happening at the same time. Well, maybe this guy was just like that. And so we get to see into this guy that's asking these questions a little bit. Jesus says, do this and you'll live. But the guy doesn't seem completely convinced or something. He wants to know more, whatever it is. Maybe he thinks he's falling short. So uh, he, he's going he's gonna to go after it, right? And, and, and you can hear it. It's like, am I, am I doing enough? Am I doing it you know, the proper way or whatever? And that's where you get this idea of him wanting to feel justified. In some way, he didn't. He, he, he knew there was something missing. And so he asks, and and this is how we see he's falling sh- where you know like the area he might feel he's falling short his question is so who exactly is my neighbor now there's a lot of reasons he could be asking that i mean maybe he just wanted to know hey is it okay if i'm like you know good to my jewish brothers but you know not nice to any of the gentiles or he could have even been asking hey is it okay if there are some of the Jews who are, you know, they're like really messing up. They're like so far outside the box that that I don't actually need to worry about them. I don't need to love them quite so much. Like maybe, I don't know, the Sadducees or the Herodians or maybe people like tax collectors or something, right? We don't really know where his question comes from, but something is missing. He he just, something is missing. And we're going to try to figure out what that is. And Jesus, thankfully, Jesus, he can see right through this guy, or so it appears, and we're going to get to know what's going on. Now, I just wanted to mention, uh, by the way, this this whole idea about, gee, do I really have to be nice even to all of my Jewish brothers? Because, you know, some of them are kind of messed up, like the tax collectors or, you know, even the Sadducees or something. This, this stuff is recorded. We've got historical record of of Jewish arguments over this very issue. Do I actually need to be nice to all my Jewish brothers? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's, 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 a, it's a very real thing. And so he's asking, who is my neighbor? He's got something missing, you know, and he wants So Jesus is going to help him and he does it by telling the story. Classic story. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about the story in its general sense, but let's, let's stick with the guy himself. Jesus's story I, I guess maybe Samuel, you'll like this because we're going to pull out a Jewish word. This is, it's really a midrash. Jesus is doing midrash on some of the Torah. And specifically, he's doing it on Leviticus 19, 
34. So why don't you read that so we know what the scripture is, and then we can sort of relate that to the story that Jesus uh, tells. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Okay. So this is where that whole idea of love your neighbor comes from. But this is also important. Notice that it's the stranger who sojourns with you. This means that they're not legally Jewish. They're not an Israelite. And yet, they want to be connected with, associated with Israel and Israel's God. So this isn't just in Leviticus 19.34. We're not talking about just any old person anywhere across the whole earth. It's talking about those who are making even a halfway attempt to be on the team, if you know what I'm saying. Now, I'm not suggesting that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be nice to everyone in the whole world. I'm just saying this text is very specific. And so, you know, hold on to that. It's an important part. Now, we can see that this guy, after he hears Jesus' story, well, he totally gets it. He totally understands Jesus' point. He has the right answer. I mean, it's, it's good. But what we also can sort of infer from the story is that this guy, he was looking at things backwards. And here's how we know. He wanted to know, who is it that qualifies as my neighbor? Jesus tells the story and helps this guy to see, no, 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 no. The real question is, who can you be a neighbor to. Mm. So he had it backwards. His neighbor was anyone or everyone that he could be neighborly toward. And of course, as we know, this got expanded. We know the overall look from God or even from Judaism or whatever is you can be neighborly toward even an enemy. This is really important because that shows up in the Torah as well. So in whatever way it was, this guy was feeling unsure, like, am I really keeping the royal law or am I doing it correctly or am I getting the right people or whatever? Jesus appears to have seen right through into this guy and he offers the solution. You need to be a neighbor to all, which is just another way of saying you need to be like God. Don't be a respecter of persons. Be a neighbor by showing mercy. And that's that, that awesome Hebrew word, chesed. It's, it's loving kindness, right? It's, it's, it's beautiful. But you show mercy even to a stranger, and outside of this context, we know even to an enemy. And this, I think, is an awesome life lesson. We are all this guy. We may not think we are, we may not admit that we are, we maybe can't even see it ourselves, but trust me, other people can see it in us. We are all this guy. We probably all hear this story and we imagine ourselves as the Samaritan in the story, (laughs) right? Of course, but it's probably not true as often as we think. Nobody's perfect, I get that, but you know what? Step back. Why don't, you, why don't you get a little more objective look at yourself? I think you'll find you're not the Samaritan as often as you think. So anyway, that's the guy. The guy gets the story. He, he's been, you know, he thought he was missing something and Jesus gave him the very thing he was missing. You need to be a neighbor to all. This is a great lesson. But there's something else sort of hidden here that we wouldn't normally see, Samuel. You know how... Uh, Well, okay, so the story itself, it's easy to understand, right? Just like the guy understood it, we can hear it, and there's nothing, it's not like culturally it's weird. We totally get it. We get the story. There were some people, they were supposed to be the good guys. In this case, they were a priest and a Levite. They they didn't do the right thing. Uh, You know, they could have helped the injured guy, or they didn't even know. He could have been dead, but they didn't bury the dead guy. Uh, And then someone unexpected, the Samaritan guy, he turns out to be the good guy and he does the right thing. And, you know, he's rescuing, caring for this guy. And what we see 
in all of this, and we know the big part of the story, it's like this image of God. And we even understand things like, you know what? It's not my title. It's not my status. It's not my pedigree or even my speech. You know, Presley, nothing, nothing. None of these things are indicators of the image of God in you. We can all do this. We have to actually walk the walk. But what we don't see from our modern view is that there's something very, very shocking in the story. We don't feel it because we aren't first century Jews. So there was a common feature of stories of the day. And I'm going to, you know, so you get the idea, Samuel, if I said, so there was a priest and a minister and a rabbi and they walk into a bar. Does that sound familiar? Very much so. Yeah, we've heard jokes like this and we get the grouping. It's a priest, a minister, and a rabbi, right? You know, things like that. We, we know, or sometimes, <laughs> you know, it's like a, a priest and a rabbi and a nun or whatever, but we get the idea. It's, it's a common grouping. Well, they had the same thing. And this, again, this is stuff you can go read about, except the common feature, the common grouping was a priest, a Levite, and an Israelite. So when the people were hearing the story, and the priest turned out to be a bad guy, the Levite turned out to be a bad guy, what they were expecting culturally, just they, they just, he was now supposed to say that an Israelite came along and was the good guy, but he doesn't. Jesus inserts he was a Samaritan, somebody that was hated by the Israelites, and he's the one that turns out to be the hero of the story. And so you can imagine for them, when they're expecting to hear Israelite, and instead what he gets is Samaritan, this story was super impactful, so much more memorable than it would have been if he hadn't have done that. And so here's your, you know, another indication that Jesus was like this storytelling ninja master, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm sure he made that exact sound too. Oh, you know he, he did. Got done the, you, with the story. You think Bruce Lee made that stuff up? Get out of here! That Jesus came up with that stuff. Uh, so anyway, here is the parable of the Good Samaritan, and that's all I've got to say about Samuel. What do you got? I guess I. Hopefully, you can help bridge the gaps for me. I'm when you went through all this, my brain was being recalled back to something that Marty Solomon and his Bema discipleship brought up. I don't have the specific reference, but he, within his telling of this story, within his, his teaching, he brings up that at the beginning of this exposition with the guy asking about what to do to inherit eternal life, and it's almost as if they're trying to summarize the the Torah into a single statement or phrase that that hints at the two competing thoughts within first century rabbinic Judaism. You had the school of Shammai and you had the school of Hillel and how most of the time Jesus was leaning more towards Hillel on things compared to just a, a couple instances where he sided with Shammai. But Marty talks about how within both of those schools of thought and in terms of who is my neighbor, they they both were very Jewish forward, like, well, of course you uh, treat your, your fellow Israelite with kindness and hesed, but then there was discrepancy beyond that, and I can't remember whether if it was Shammai or Hillel, one of them was like, you know, if it's anything to do with the Romans, you make sure that you don't, you know, treat them anything with Hesed because of what they're doing to us. And then the other school of thought maybe was more lenient on that, but then they didn't include like pagan people like the the Samaritans and then, you know, what's so um just groundbreaking is that Jesus would bring that like what you said, that he would bring the Samaritan into this story and he's like completely just turning both of those schools of thought on their heads by introducing that character within this midrash. Yeah, yeah, I forgot that Marty had brought it up that way. Uh, and that actually, it's a really good point. And okay, so there's this cute little story 
from Judaism, and I'm going to try to do it off the top of my head, so I'm probably going to blow it, but whatever, you'll get the idea. Shammai was always considered to be the more strict guy. He just didn't play around, right? (laughs) The law is the law, right? And Hillel was much more lenient, but not in a bad way. It was just more of a a way of, of trying to include and leave room for people to grow and change, whatever. So the story goes like this. There's some guy, he's not Jewish, he comes in and he, he, he walks into Shammai's room or whatever and he says, uh, he stands on one leg and he says, I want you to teach me the Torah while I stand on one leg. And Shammai is, I don't know, bothered, offended, something. He takes a stick and he starts chasing the guy out of his out of his office or room, whatever. You know, get out of here. You're not serious, right? That kind of a thing. Where th- that same guy then walks into Hillel and he stands on one leg and says, I want you to teach me Torah while I stand on one leg. And so Hillel looks at him and says, what you do not wish for others to do to you, don't do to them. This is the Torah. The rest is commentary, go and study it. Which is also a really cool view into the, yeah, see guys, it's really just a summary. Mm -hmm. That's going to give you an image of what you're going for, but you still got to go back and get the details. But the idea that, you know, Hillel is saying, look, anyone who is truly interested should be given every opportunity. And so, you know what? I'm going to meet you where you're at. I'm going to tell you, this is what the Torah is all about. But now I'm also going to lead you on the right path. You need to go study it because that little summary is not going to get you across the finish line. Mm-hmm. Is that really addressing your question or whatever? Yeah, I got, yeah, I got it, to tell him my story and I forgot. <laughs> no, I think that added to it a lot. And I didn't necessarily have a question. I was just trying to bring in some more context to show that Jesus yeah. potentially was addressing those two major rabbinic schools of thought and how both sides would have been surprised by his way of using the story and ending it Uh, and they would have walked away feeling convicted and like introspective about yeah what he was proposing for his fellow brethren to do yeah it's such a great image because you know in one case the guy goes away and he's no closer to god than he ever was and in the second case hey there's a real opportunity you know, so that's really cool. Yeah, great story. Love it. I Just so you know, uh, in case anybody cares, the Hillel and Shammai, I think they were, I don't know, let's call it, and again, don't hold me to this because I'm going off the top of my head, maybe two or three generations before Jesus, something in that neighborhood. Um, you've maybe heard of the teacher Gamaliel. Paul says, you know, he studied under Gamaliel. Uh, he was, uh, Gamaliel was a student of Hillel. I don't know. Uh you know, like directly, or if it was a generation removed, or what? But you, you get the connection. And Jesus very much uh, aligned with the Pharisees, so he was very much aligned with Hillel uh, most of the time. Uh, so yeah, it's a great picture, great picture. So anyway, this guy, whatever he thought he was missing, he's now got it, and we're moving on. Luke chapter ten, verses thirty-eight to forty-two. Now, as they went on their way. Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Okay, this is, we're getting into some good stuff, Samuel. So first of all, let's notice Luke is the only one telling this story. Well, you're going to hear more about Mary and Martha later, but that'll be in John's gospel, different context. This is about Mary and Martha here from Luke. And somehow we've ended up in Bethany. And if you read your Bible and look at maps long enough, you're going to find out there's more than one. So (laughs) we're in Bethany and we're about a mile or so east of Jerusalem and maybe slightly to the south. So we're still 
you know, pretty close to the capital city. And we get some of that information from uh, John chapter 11, verse 1, if you're going to go there. Uh, Samuel, why don't you just read that little bit so people have an idea what we pulled from there. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Yeah. So, okay. So we get it. They're in Bethany, whatever. Uh, but here's the thing. I, and I, this is, it's going to be much more important later, but I'm going to point it out now. So it's kind of like planting a seed. Notice how it says the village of who? Uh, Mary and her sister Martha. Yeah. It would suggest, and, and this isn't like, you know, it absolutely must be absolutely certainly true, but it's very, 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 very common. If you're listing Mary first, what you're actually doing is putting her in the primary position, the, the position of, of prominence or preeminence. I don't know which word I should use there. But remember, that came from John 11. Notice what it says here. This is in verse uh, 38. It says that a woman named what? A uh, woman named Martha. A woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. In this story, Mary, I'm sorry, <laughs> Martha is the one with the position of prominence, preeminence, whatever, right? Very interesting. We'll talk more about that another day, but I just kind of just wanted you to see that. And, and especially because we're, we're going to get to the end of this story, right? So here, it's Martha. And it says that, you know, they went on or whatever, but it also reads like Mary welcomed Jesus into her home. She's the matron of the house, and it even almost sounds like uh, she's only welcoming Jesus in. You know, it depends on what verses you read and what you think's happening. But there is that one line. Uh, well, it's I guess it's more up at the top. It says they went on their way. There's one thing, but then it comes back later and says that uh, she was distracted with much serving. Well, I don't know how much serving it takes for one guy, right? So you get the idea that, oh, uh, that must mean that it isn't just Jesus. Many of his followers are actually with him. So Mary has to, I'm sorry, Martha has to play host to an entire host of people. Yeah, I see what I did there. So, so here she is. She's being hospitable to the whole group. Now, Samuel, what have we been saying in this podcast about hospitality? It's a... Primary attribute of God, radical hospitality, is one of his major factors. Yeah, it is a great and honorable thing. A good, good thing. Highly regarded in the culture. And so Martha is doing that thing. So let's not throw her under the bus too quick. Let's not act like she's, you know, some sort of dummy too quick. She's doing an awesome thing. But then... We also notice that Jesus is doing some teaching at the house. We know that because, <clears throat> number one, he's sitting down, and number two, they tell us that she is at his feet while he's teaching. But he's teaching at the house. And you got Mary sitting at his feet. Now, that language, sitting at the Lord's feet, sitting at his feet, this is very common, very common description for disciples. That's what disciples do. They sit at the feet of their master. And so, this language is suggesting that Mary is acting like a disciple. She wants to learn everything about this teacher. And, and what we don't know, was it just for this visit? Did she have any, any, any interaction with him before? Is she going to have any interaction with him after? Is she going to join the traveling group? We don't know. We don't have good historical record to tell us. But we do know we have evidence that Jesus seems to welcome female disciples. He doesn't draw a line and say, no, you can't be here. This is pretty awesome. But poor Martha, she's distracted. And she's distracted from what, Samuel? Um, I guess if I'm using Martha and Mary as a comparison, Mary was listening in verse 39 it says listen to his teaching so maybe martha was distracted from what jesus was saying in her house yeah she had all of her attention was going to the serving and she was distracted from 
Jesus's words, Jesus's teaching. Now, this is an unenviable position. She probably wanted to hear the teaching too, but she's the matron of the house. It was important that people be cared for in her home. Extremely important. Now, unless you're just being a butt, you can relate to what's going on in her head, the thoughts in her head. She's thinking, man, there's so much I need to do. I need help. Mary could help me first, and then maybe we could both listen. Or she could be helping me right now instead of just sitting there listening, right? And on and on. You can imagine Martha's thoughts and come on, if you're being honest, most of us are going to feel that way too. At that moment, Martha believed that Mary was in the wrong. And so what'd she do? She went to the one person in the room that had Mary's complete attention. And what did she go to him for? She wanted justice. Does it not concern you that she is not helping me? Order her to help. Martha is totally, totally sympathetic character. And if you're busting her chops, you're just not being honest with yourself. At least I think. Most of us be the same in her shoes. But Jesus sees it differently. And he begins his response with, Martha, Martha. It's, I mean, just those words. It's like a gentle rebuke. And again, we've talked about this so many times before. We're getting a lesson from Jesus about priority. In any other circumstance, Martha's actions and attitude would have been lauded. It would would be great. Martha, you are the best. You're awesome. But in this moment, she had chosen poorly. And, I, you know, maybe to bring it into modern day, this was kind of a, hey, make yourselves at home kind of a moment. And, And to put aside hospitality, even hospitality in this first century Jewish context, to hear Jesus's teaching. Well, that was the better thing. And Martha, ultimately, she got blinded by what was like admittedly good, important things. And again, life lesson should be a lesson to all of us in our walk as disciples. There are so many things that are good, so many things that are important, and we need to go after them with gusto. But we need to remain aware of everything that's around us and understand when this might be one of those times when we need to set that good and important thing aside for some other thing that's actually more important in the moment. It's, it's not easy, but we need to, we need to uh, relate to Martha and, and l- allow that to help us mature and grow, get better. You got to somehow endeavor to do both but don't let the, you know, what, what do we do today? Housework or mowing the grass or your job or, I mean, something. Keep you from the most important thing. So Jesus makes it clear. Mary made the better choice. And he wasn't going to take that from her. And I hate that I have to say this out loud. When it says that he wasn't going to take that from her, he, it, it means, in context, he is not going to make her get up and take care of hospitality instead of continuing listening to his teaching. It doesn't mean that this has anything to do with eternal security. Jesus isn't somehow slipping in a little doctrine or theology that, oh yes, you know, she's, she's eternally secure because she made the right choice. That's not that. She's not going to have to give up listening to the teaching of the master. It, it, took, it took priority. Mm-hmm. So, there you go. I totally like this interpretation of looking at the story between Mary and Martha and their decisions. Is there a chance, though, that another way to look at it could be within the circumstance of the roles that 
each one of those women had within this scenario that I'm, I'm thinking about, like, you know, in Paul's letters about how the body of Jesus, the assembly, is made up of many parts and they have different roles and functions and how even within the present day, not even touching on centuries of people following and serving God, um, how when people are enacting being the hands and feet of Jesus going out and doing the heavy lifting, you know, alleviating suffering, uh, healing the sick, taking care of the orphan, the widow, whatever, there might not be chances within those circumstances to prioritize teaching, um, I guess, more so than the taking care of the physical needs. So I just wonder if if this is maybe getting playing at sort of like previous stories in the the Torah with siblings like Jacob, Jacob and Esau, Cain and Abel, where one was experiencing jealousy over the other of what they had or did not have. And maybe if the other sibling was striving to be content within the role that, you know, God had placed them in, if Martha had just been content to say, like, you know, this is what I've been lauded to do with having the rabbi at my house right now. I know that hospitality is a good thing. I may not be able to hear the teaching, but I'm going to, like, trust that he's going to see what I'm doing in honor, and it's going to be honored even if I don't hear every bit of his teaching. Uh, could there be a chance that that's at play too? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a great way to look at it. Okay, so first of all, like, you don't want to walk away from this little part of Scripture going, okay, got it. Teaching is always better than hospitality. <laughs> Okay, so it's definitely not saying that. And you brought up an interesting point. If Martha was was paying attention to Martha and being content in her role and who she was and all of that, her her part of the body, the way we'd say it today, she wouldn't really have cared quite so much about what Mary was doing. And and yet, at the same time, we all have a responsibility to one another. We're teaching one another and helping each other grow in our uh, uh, ability to image God and those kind of things. And so, you know, a, a person could feel some of that stuff. But yeah, maybe, maybe for Mary, this was the better role. And maybe for Martha, it wasn't. That's the, you know, I'm a hand, you're a foot kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And here's the kicker. Mary, I'm sorry, Martha was trying to, how should I say it? It's, it's almost like she was trying to decide what the better thing was for Mary. Mm. And that was a little overstepping. That's, that's kind of, I, I felt like when you were talking, what you, what you were talking about, it sort of leads to that too. It's like, hey, uh, listen, you know, this isn't just black and white. It probably is to God because he, you know, he's just perfect and everything. But for us, life is a lot of gray. And so don't you take your ideas, the things that you think you know to be right and wrong, and and push them on someone else like they couldn't have another view or understanding or calling or whatever it might be, right? So yeah, that those are those are great questions, great mm -hmm. uh, answers, everything. Same, it's good. It it almost feels like it's getting at the heart of um in our quest to do the tikkun olam of the fixing of the world rather than our focus being on oh how can i fix these other people surrounding me that are broken nine times out of ten that's not going to work like instead we should be focusing on how can i be practicing repentance in my own life and use that as an example and a model for others so they can see the differences in my life, and then they take a step forward from there when they look at their own lives themselves. Yeah, very good. And you know what? There's even one more. I mean, are you saying that there could be another view other than the one that Paul said on the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> Let's lay that one out there without any ambiguity. <laughs> yeah, that is good. Well, hey, uh, you know, we got a little time. I think we ought to head on. Yeah. I mean, the story's going to change a lot. So we're, you know, if your neck hurts, it's because we're giving you a little whiplash. But that's all right. Let's go on. We're covered. We're insured. 
All right, where are we at? We are on, ooh, oh, we're moving back into the gospel of John. Oh, no. oh, Samuel. This is tough stuff, but you know what? We can do it. We've got what it takes. Yeah. So John, chapter seven, verses one and two. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Okay. Now, again, quick switch of context here, but whatever. Sometimes this is going to be true even in the Gospels themselves, like if you picked one and read from beginning to end. But we are sort of uh, uh, making it a little worse because we're trying to go through chronologically. And so we're going to have more of those moments where it feels like we're snapping around. But anyway, uh, we were just in Bethany near Jerusalem. Now we're off in Galilee. And and interestingly, he's preparing to head to Jerusalem. Kind of strange. Uh, But also remember, let's see, because we're in John now, we got to go back. Uh, In the book of John... And I know this has been a while, but he had just lost many of his disciples over that whole, I have come down from heaven bit and the, hey, you know, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood stuff, right? (laughs) So uh, that that was, I mean, that was a dramatic moment. And and you remember Jesus was kind of bothered and a lot of people loved it. This was a big deal. And so now they go back to Galilee. John tells us that Jesus didn't want to be in Judea. Because the Jews wanted to kill him. Now, again, the Jews, John uses this phrase for a number of things in this particular sentence, and I say that because it's important. uh, The Jews would be like, you know, the religious leaders that were back down in Judea and Jerusalem. It's not all Israelites. And now, uh, what else? What do we got? Oh, uh, it's the time of the festival of Sukkot. Another name for this is the festival of, or uh, the feast of booths, or the feast of tabernacles, and if this was one of the uh, pilgrimage festivals, and by that I mean it was supposed to happen in Jerusalem, and people from all over, not just Israel, but sometimes even the diaspora out in the world, uh, were all supposed to make a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. Right, so all males are supposed to go uh, to participate. Now, in this particular time, in the first century, we're just these are just the facts. Not every male went to every pilgrimage festival every time. It wasn't understood to be a hard requirement. There are many, many reasons for that. It, it doesn't. It, it doesn't really. Help us see and understand anything better right here. So we're not going to worry about that. But maybe you could think of it as more of, it was was always a standing invitation. You were definitely expected to go sometimes. And there were some who never even missed a chance to go. We get the the sense that Jesus and, and even his whole family appear to be some of those that were the more frequent attendees to all these festivals. But it wasn't an absolute requirement. And then another thing, notice in the first one, he says, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And we said, oh, those were the leaders in Jerusalem. Well, sentence number two, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Well, and now John is using that exact same phrase, the Jews, except he means something different. Here, it means uh, that it's, it's just, um, it's a Judean festival. It's, it's an Israelite festival, a Jewish festival. He, it doesn't have anything to do particularly with the leadership. And so right there in two sentences, right beside each other, he uses the phrase the Jews in a different way. So that's just more to understand about John. He's hard to follow. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to take a second, uh, mostly because we're kind of running out of time. and I don't know how much more we'll get to do. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about festivals. And Samuel, you may or may not know some of this stuff off the top of your head. I'm sure we've talked about it at points. Uh, But let's go back. It says that we are looking at the festival of Sukkot. So we are somewhere in the, I'm just going to call it the October-ish time frame. If you were in America, you're on the Gregorian calendar, even if you're not in America, whatever. October-ish is is the time of year we're talking about. So a couple of weeks before the festival of Sukkot, the festival of booths, 
uh, we were in Rosh Hashanah. And what's, and I know I mentioned this somewhere in an earlier podcast, what's super important about that is, so now, from, from the Gospel of John at this point, it was just a couple of weeks earlier that marked, okay, we are six months away from Jesus's death and resurrection. So we still got a whole lot of Gospels to go through, but we've only got about six months of Jesus' life left. Anyway, Rosh Hashanah, uh, it, it started with this, uh, call it a 10-day, they call it the High Holidays, 10-day festival. Now, it, it celebrated the idea of creation, and, and it led to, on the 10th day, the Yom Kippur, and that's probably a, a, a Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. These are probably names people have heard. And Yom Kippur, uh, it was the, the Day of Atonement. It was the only day of the year the high priest was able to go in, all that stuff. But it represented purification. And so what I want you to, to think about with those is just this idea that the spring festivals have come to be understood as representing Jesus's first advent on the earth. So his first coming 2,000 years ago. So when you see the festivals of Passover and uh, uh, the uh, counting of the, 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 the 50 days for Pentecost and all of that, all of that related to what he did and accomplished on his first visit. These fall festivals, October festivals, they represent what's going to be going on his second coming. And so what do we see in this? Rosh Hashanah, it represented creation, but for us, we understand that as new creation. That's when we will be resurrected if we're going to be in the kingdom. And then the idea of purification at Yom Kippur, well, guess what? We, in our resurrected bodies, are going to be made pure. We pursue that now in seeking the kingdom, but it will come to its fruition when that happens. And then to wrap that up, you have Sukkot, which sort of represents uh, the kingdom itself, And so that was when it celebrated the idea that God was dwelling among the nation of Israel, and they were all in the desert, and they were all living in booths or tents or tabernacles, whatever word you want to put in there. And that's such a beautiful picture, uh, first, because God is dwelling with us, and uh, also because uh, during that time, they were completely dependent on God in every way. So, great, great pictures. And then, here's one, Samuel. Do you remember what follows the Festival of Sukkot? Is it the Jubilee? No, but that's a good try. (laughs) It's always a hard one. The Festival of Sukkot is seven days long. Now, do you know what follows Sukkot? I'm blanking, man. Crickets. Oh, darn. I thought I'd have you on that one. Uh, It's the eighth day. Now, normally, we go through a week, we get to the seventh day, and what do we do? turn right around and go back to the first day, right? (laughs) But if there's an eighth day, a mystical eighth day, that would represent the end of this age. We no longer go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. We get to the end of it and we go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, boom, eight. It's the world to come. Mm. So all of this, just beautiful pictures, interesting stuff. Anyway, the point is, they're at the festival of Sukkot, right? Or, Or that's what's coming up. And it's a it's this big joyous festival, uh, and <laughs> I mean, I honestly I hate using this word, but I don't know how else to get the idea across. It's basically a week long party. I mean, it's a party. There's, and I hate saying this out loud. There's drinking and dancing and singing up until all hours of the night. <laughs> It sounds awful, and hopefully I'm making it just word choice. I'm hope I'm making it worse than it is, but they even used tithe to purchase whatever they desired to take part in this festival, and all of it was with God's approval. In fact, Samuel, I, you got to read this little bit from Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 26. Read that for us. And spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. Yeah. Sounds like a bit of a party, right? Yeah. And But see, here's the important part. It's so important to remember this. What is this, what is this pointing to? What is it? A, a, a shadow, an image of the kingdom. 
this rejoicing. What are we rejoicing over? Why are we having this big banquet, this feast, all of this stuff? It's the kingdom, God uh, ruling on the earth. It's, it's, so it's an important thing. And yet, to be fair, it was kind of a big party kind of atmosphere. It was a big deal. But they also, in the midst of all this, it wasn't, it wasn't only party, but, you know, trying to be honest, they did do it. There was also this thing that came up every day, the water drawing ceremony. This is going to end up being important for our conversation later. The point of this water drawing ceremony, they, they would, they'd, they'd all go down to this one pool, pool of Siloam, they'd dip the water, they'd walk it up back, and then they would pour the water out. The point of this was to ask God for adequate rainfall for the coming year. It was just a way of saying, God, you've blessed us this whole year. We're starting over. Please bless us again. And they did this ceremony every day, and it was kind of the highlight of all of the festivities. So again, yes, there was partying going on, but but ultimately it wasn't the real focal point or the, the highlight. The highlight was this water drawing ceremony and other things that went along with it. So anyway, I'm telling you all this because it's going to be very important later. And, you know, there's no point in going on with any more text because we're just going to get into a lot of whatever. So there you go. I laid it out. Samuel, is that... Uh, Picture of the festivals, help or hurt? <laughs> I definitely think it helps, and I'm actually glad that you brought up those details about the festival of Sukkot, and I think our Western tendency to feel, I don't know, embarrassed or maybe ashamed that there's this aspect of celebrating within the narrative and the kingdom of God. I think that at least within Western evangelicalism, there's probably been too hard of a push of this stoic nature of our faith and that we have to be as stern and somber as possible in our quest to follow God. But, I mean, this part, like what you had me read within Deuteronomy, came from God himself to say, like, I mean, and it it connects with the writer of Ecclesiastes where there is a time and place for everything. And, like, just as much as we need to learn how to repent and prioritize that in our lives, there also needs to be times where we need to practice celebrating the things that God has given us, gifted us, providing for us, because, like, if the world doesn't see the people of God celebrating as much as repenting, then it's like, what is there to get excited about to see like what God is doing in your life and like bringing to fulfillment the the fixing of the world so yeah. I, i'm i'm just i'm glad that you brought it up so that we can hopefully start a new narrative within our mind to say like you know it's okay to celebrate like within reason within um appropriation it's just God approves of it so yeah, we shouldn't act as though joy isn't also one of the attributes of God. We have to leave room for that. Now, does this mean that they were getting fallen down drunk and puking over puking all over each other's sandals? Okay, no, better not be that. Does that mean that, you know, because there was, okay, I said there was dancing. Guess what? Guys danced with guys and girls danced with girls. I should have mentioned that part, huh? Singing, all this stuff. So they did try to keep it within, you know, good modest bounds. And yet there was celebration, real celebration. So, yeah, everything in moderation, I believe, is how the saying goes. Something like that. But anyway, yeah, it's good stuff. Anything else? I don't think so. This is a good one. All right, let's let's let them go. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best 
to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.